Father, I want to thank you for your presence here right now with us. You are the God that leads us into all truth. And we are asking you, Father, on this controversial topic to our baptism, that you would guide us into the truth of your word. Father, I pray that as we wade through this material, and as we search your scriptures, and as I believe you would lead us to the truth of this matter, we ask God that we would walk this out, and especially the implications of baptism every day as we serve and live for you, Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so a story is told, so I've heard, and I'm going to do my best to share this story with you, that there was a Presbyterian minister, a Baptist minister, and a rabbi that each of them had purchased new vehicles and were kind of wanting to be creative how they could dedicate their cars to the Lord. So the Presbyterian minister thought and thought and thought, and he went to his garden hose and he sprinkled his car with water, and he dedicated it to the Lord. The Baptist minister thought, wow, how can I do this? I want to dedicate it to the Lord. So he came up with this brilliant idea, and he drove it right into the lake, immersed it, dedicated it to the Lord. The rabbi is thinking, what can I do? Comes up with a brilliant idea, goes to the back of the car, cuts two inches off the tailpipe, and dedicates it to the Lord. I was really hoping that it wouldn't have to be awkward. This is the truth of circumcision, if you're not aware. That is not a, a hot button of God. That is not a taboo topic for the Lord. It is a very real topic. And Genesis 17.10 makes it a very real, very important, very significant um I could call it rite of passage, but really it is the seal of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And in that particular passage in Genesis 17.10, God says this will be the sign of this everlasting covenant between you and me. And we have entered into this covenant. We are the seed of Abraham. Um, But as we move into the new covenant... We obviously are not required to circumcise as a sign of this new covenant. Now, as we approach the idea of baptism, there are three basic views that I'm going to have us talk about tonight. First of all would be from the Roman Catholic view, and that is that baptism is one of seven sacraments. You can read them here in your notebook if you happen to remember to have brought your notebook tonight. And it is baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist. What is the Eucharist? The bread. The mass, right, okay. (laughs) Communion. Penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and matrimony. Uh, The definition of a sacrament would be basically a command issued by Jesus Christ of a symbolic nature. Now, as we move into the New Testament, I understand where the Catholic view is uh, and where they're coming from, but I see two ordinances or sacraments, um, ceremonies, if you will, and that will be baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're going to cover baptism tonight. Next week will be the Lord's Supper. As for the Roman Catholic view, they believe that children should be baptized 
because it will wash away original sin. Should the infant die in, in infancy, if they have been baptized, then they would go to heaven. That's the general understanding. Why? Because this original sin um, would, would potentially keep them from heaven and therefore it needs to be washed away and that's what baptism is supposed to do. At least for the infant. So they baptize infants. That is not the reformational view, at least for the, those in the Reformation that embraced infant baptism. Lutherans do, the Reformed faith does, uh, Reformed Baptist, Reformed Presbyterian, etc. They would hold to infant baptism because they see it as a continuation of circumcision into the New Testament, except instead of circumcising, the symbol changes, and instead of circumcising the males at eight days of age, it is now the baptism of infants. I hold to a view called believer's baptism. I'm going to get to that in a few moments. But I did grow up under the teaching of infant <coughs> baptism, and I want to share with you where this particular viewpoint comes from, and it is, it is not without scriptural basis. When I say that, I, I am emphasizing scriptural basis as far as how they interpret it. As we go through some of these scriptures, you'll see under letter C, scriptures to the contrary. First one is previous scriptures rightly understood. I hope that does not come across proud, but I do believe that there is a right way to interpret scripture and a wrong way. Um, and so when we look at these scriptures, even though this is a practice that stems all the way back to the second century in the early church, infant baptism, um, we have to examine the scripture, not what the early church practice. Okay? So that, that particular perspective of infant baptism would say that circumcision was the sign of the new covenant. That baptism, that is baptism of infants, or just baptism in general, is the sign of the new covenant. I would not disagree with that. As we turn to Colossians 2, and I'm going to ask that you do that, I want us to look at one of the main passages, and it's really the kingpin passage that this doctrine rests on. It's not the only one, but it is the kingpin, and, and I'll explain to you what that means in a moment. But in Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, it says this, In him, referring to Christ, you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, that is, the flesh. Some of your versions say flesh, that's the literal meaning, or sinful nature. Not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, that is, after eight days, uh, like Rusty, was, he was circumcised, now we circumcise typically on the second day. But back then it was on the eighth day, and there was reasons for that. But that was a circumcision done by hands, and that is what he's referring to here, physical circumcision. The circumcision that he's talking about before putting off the flesh, that's the spiritual circumcision. Okay, let me back up and start that verse again. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. And so the idea is that since circumcisions, uh, circumcision is the outward sign 
of the circumcision of the heart, which is the cutting off or the putting off of the flesh, that is the same as water baptism. Water baptism is the, is the death to ourselves, our old way of life, the old man, and it is now being raised with Christ. And so the backdrops, they say, would be the same. Circumcision is the crucifixion of the flesh. It's the cutting off of the flesh or circumcision of the heart. Baptism would be very similar. We're going to look at that in Romans 6. It is the putting off of the old man or the flesh. Though they are similar, they are different, but they would say that they being the same, therefore they must be the same. Circumcision of the Old Test, Old Covenant baptism of the new since they both point to the same thing they must be the same thing except the symbol has changed if the symbol has changed instead of circumcising it is now water baptism we they then ask the question what is the purpose then of circumcision it was to inaugurate or to welcome someone into the community of believers at birth within the Jewish home. It is a looking ahead to faith in God. Therefore, water baptism is the same thing. You baptize the infant. You are welcoming them into the community of believers just like they did in the Old Testament however, using a different symbol because of the concept of washing that baptism gets at that we're going to get to in a bit. And since they circumcised infants in the Old Testament as the sign of the covenant, they would do the same in the New Covenant, except now the symbol has changed and it's baptism, not circumcision. So we baptize infants. So do you see the line of reasoning in this? Um, It's not a stupid argument. It is not an argument that has no basis. Um, It has much to be commended, in all honesty. But it falls short, I believe, in a number of ways. And we need to look at those ways because if we're going to look at baptism, we have to see the whole picture and we have to ask a very real and honest question Why does Paul so oppose circumcision and not say something to the effect, well, guys, even though I'm opposed to circumcision, we now baptize as a replacement. He never goes there. He never implies it. He simply says, if you you seek to be circumcised, then Christ means nothing to you. That is being circumcised according to the law. He doesn't say, well, I understand you, you shouldn't get circumcised because you're trying to follow, follow the law. Instead, you should be water baptized. He never says this. He says things like in Galatians chapter 6, he says, um, neither circumcision nor circ- uncircumcision means anything. What counts is water baptism, right? Isn't that how it goes? No, what counts is a new creation. And we have to pause and we have to ask if, if the argument is a legitimate argument for infant baptism, that it reflects infant circumcision, 
then why does Paul want to get rid of circumcision and not connect it ever in the New Testament except here? And he doesn't connect them. He only, he only references a similar symbolic meaning of the two. And that is all that he does. There is nowhere in the New Testament that says that water baptism replaces circumcision. It is only by implication. So those who embrace infant baptism would want to substantiate it a little bit more. And so we would want to look, in all fairness, at Acts chapter 2. And this is immediately following Peter's sermon on Pentecost. And the people are asking, okay, what should we do? Verse 37, what shall we do, brothers? Peter, tell me, what do I do now? In view of Jesus being the Messiah and he's come and we've crucified him and he's raised from the dead, what do we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children. Aha! See, this gift of the Holy Spirit is for you and your infants. Together, as a household, as a family. So if you believe and you're going to be baptized, then you should also baptize your infants. Why? Because the promise is for you and for your infants, your children. But there's no period there, is there? No, there's not. It says, and for all who are afar off. We have to pause. Is Paul... Excuse me, is Peter trying to say that you should be baptized in your infants and your children? Or is he trying to say that this promise is going to be for you, it's for, it's for your children, and it's for all those who are afar off, all who will believe, all who will call upon the name of the Lord. It is for those who will call upon the name of the Lord. Do you see that? And if they're going to... if, if there are many in the Christian community, the parents are saved and the children, even after they grow up, die in their sins. This promise is specifically and only this gift of the Spirit, forgiveness of sins, repentance, baptism. This is for those who call on the name of the Lord. The emphasis that there's a whole to emphasis infant baptism, say the emphasis is on the future tense, will call in the name of the Lord. So you should baptize your children with this belief that they will call in the name of the Lord. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not feeling the weight of that argument. It is for you, it is for your children, because you are to train them and instruct them in the Lord, and it is for all who are afar off. Does that mean that if you call in the name of the Lord that you will be saved and that your children will be saved and all who are afar off will be saved? No. Only those who believe, those who repent, and those who call upon the name of the Lord. Okay? So there is no period after you and your children. Okay? It also includes the Gentiles, those who are afar off. And we have. We, I, I think it's fair to say that, that, that this argument then is weak. Because the focus has got to be those who will call upon the name of the Lord. Okay? Um, and then Acts 16, 15. This concerns Lydia. She was a dealer in purple, apparently a 
somewhat wealthy lady. She ex expressed hospitality to Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, because Luke was with him at this point, others that may have been in their entourage. And it says there that God opens Lydia's heart, and in verse 18, excuse me, 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. So her household was baptized. Does this household concept necessarily include infants? It can, the concept of household can, but this is, this is not a certainty by any means that it does. There's nowhere in the passage that would even suggest that it includes infants. Actually, we're not even sure she's married. There's no reference to her husband. There's no reference to her children. Household, many times, would include servants. It could very easily be that Lydia, being a wealthy woman, having servants, believed, and so did her servants believe, and they were all baptized. It, it could very easily mean this. Actually, if you go over just a little bit later in this chapter, we see another household that's baptized, and that's the jailer's household. It says in verse 30, he, he's, let me back up to verse 31. It says, believe in the Lord, because he asked, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord and you will be saved, you and your household. So if you believe, you're going to be saved and your household. Now, what must the household do, however, to be saved? Right on the coattails of the jailer, what must they do to be saved? They have to want to be saved by Jesus. Okay, so they have to want to. What else? Believe. They have to believe. There you go. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. I don't know of anyone, I'm sure there may be some cults out there that believe this, but I don't know of anyone who says that if you believe, suddenly your children are saved. Everyone stands in their relationship with Jesus Christ with regard to their belief or unbelief. Not because of mom and dad's belief. But we need to go further because that we see the promise unfold. In verse 32, it says, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. So it's not automatic. Salvation is not automatic. They not only preached the word to him, but to everyone in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. But look at verse 34. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. Why was his whole family baptized? Because they all believed. Why would Luke emphasize that his family, was, which would mean his children, his family, uh, were baptized and want to emphasize the fact that they all believed, by the way, and that's why they were baptized, but it does not do that with Lydia. We cannot assume that there were infants in Lydia's household and were therefore baptized. Okay? In, in chapter 18, verse 8, we see a similar situation. It says, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard and believed and were baptized. So Crispus and his whole household were baptized. But why were they baptized? Because they 
because they believed. Okay. Now, this argument is felt to be so strong on behalf of infant baptism, the, the Lutheran, the Lutheran denomination holds to this, the Reformed faith, which would be Reformed, not Reformed Baptist, Reformed Presbyterian. Um, there are a number of uh, denominations that, that are not coming to my mind, but a number of them within the Reformed tradition. And they too would believe in infant baptism. I think what we're going to need to do is, is we're going to have to ask some hard questions at this point before we go any further concerning infant baptism. If we were to look at the Old Testament, did you typically become a Jew? How did you enter into the Jewish community? You were born into it. So here's my question. How does someone join the Christian community? Are you born into it? Spiritually, okay, but we're not physically born into it. So that is absolutely... As you go through the whole Old Testament, it is natural birth. As, As a matter of fact, John the Baptist and Jesus talk about the natural descendants of Abraham, that God could raise up natural descendants uh, very easily. Okay, He could do it out of these rocks right here. Ouch. That is nothing to be able to stand on. Physical birth into the community. However, throughout the New Testament, this concept of physical birth has no place. It is only spiritual birth. So if physical birth is then followed by circumcision, because that's the way of the Old Testament, we move into the New Testament, you're spiritually born, then what should happen? Spiritually circumcised. And what sign of that covenant do we use in the New Covenant? Baptism. Baptism. Not physically born, that's not the emphasis in the New Testament. It's spiritually born into the community of believers. Not physically born. That is the main difference between the Old Test, old Covenant and the New. The physical birth versus the spiritual birth. You are never physically born into the community of believers or the church. It's always spiritual birth. Okay? Secondly, we would have to ask if... There is this connection between circumcision and baptism, infant baptism. Then why doesn't Paul make a big deal about it? Why doesn't he tell us that there is a connection? Why does he only hint at it? And that one place in the entire New Testament, Colossians chapter 2, that I read to you, 11 and 12. Why? And the reason that I'm pressing this is because... For the most part, beyond the second, third decade of the early church, the predominant people in the community of believers were Gentiles. Gentiles came in like a flood. Granted, the first decade or two were predominantly Jews. They were, almost exclusively. But as you move into um, the, the second decade, you start seeing the birthing of churches that are predominantly Gentile. 
you cannot assume that Gentiles wouldn't see this connection. The Galatians, Paul, which is predominantly Gentile, Thessalonica, the Thessalonians were predominantly Gentiles. They went from idol worship and being in pagan idolatry to worshiping the one true God, serving the Lord Jesus Christ. They would not naturally know this connection. Why doesn't Paul tell them? Why doesn't Peter tell them? Why doesn't Jude or John or some new... Why doesn't the book of Hebrews that gets so much into symbolism of the Old Covenant get into this connection between circumcision and baptism? Can I suggest to you it's because it does not exist. That is infant baptism. It doesn't exist. And, and if it did exist, you would see clear teachings because we cannot assume that, the, that these churches were Jewish churches, Jewish communities, and would understand this. They would not. Okay? And then, lastly, if you were to look under scriptures to the contrary, number 5, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 29, chapter 10, verse 16, talks about the Lord's Supper. So follow me with this. I'm going to uh, get into the Lord's Supper next week, not this week, but I want to draw this connection. If there is a connection between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament infant baptism, would there not be an equally strong connection between Passover and the Lord's Supper? If that's the case, then who should we invite to the Lord's Supper? Everyone, Everyone including? Children. Including infants, including children. Excuse me, including infants. Yes. So we should, if we're going to draw this connection, and not all, some within the Reformed tradition do believe this, and I don't know about Lutherans, I don't think they do, um, but they, do not, they, they don't take that step. That would certainly be a logical step. If you're going to see the connection between circumcision and baptism, you should also see then this connection between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. And so infants should be allowed to attend the Lord's Supper. But it's clear in Scripture. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you should not be at the table. That is very clear. Okay. So for that reason, many of them don't go that extra step. But it would be a logical one, would it not? So let's now look at... Infant baptism. Let's, let's kind of unravel this. Let's look at it. Um, we need to understand what it is. We need to understand the mode of baptism, what it accomplishes, and maybe get into a few questions you see there at the very end of your notes. So, believer's baptism. Let's understand. Well, turn with me, by the way, John chapter 3. We need to understand uh, the background, the backdrop to baptism. We see... John the Baptist baptizing at the Jordan River in John chapter 3. The last half of the first half of John 3 is this dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus. The second half has to do with the with the uh, with John the Baptist. Jesus disciples see John the Baptist baptizing. And as we look at Verse 25, it says an argument developed between some of John's disciples 
and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now, we have just been talked, talking about water baptism in verse 23. Verse 25 talks about an argument concerning ceremonial washing. And then verse 26 talks about baptism again. And I think it's fair to conclude that the reason why this argument developed about ceremonial washing is that there is a connection between baptism of the New Testament and ceremonial washing in the Old. Ceremonial washing was done by, let's say, for example, priests. They would have the, the, the lavers, the ten lavers. They would wash their hands because they were doing bloody sacrifices and they would wash their hands in these lavers. Um, that was a washing. There were also ceremonial washings, but according to the tradition of the elders, they washed their hands and then they would eat. Now, we see that as a good practice, but they did not understand very much this concept of germs and wash, maybe getting the dirt off your hands, but not the germs. And so this idea of ceremonially washing your hands before you ate was simply a religious thing to do and so they rebuked Jesus because he and his disciples were found on one occasion to be eating and they hadn't washed their hands Mark chapter 7 ceremonial washing was practiced to the extreme in the Essene community E-S-S-E-N-E the Essene community some would say that John the Baptist was a part of this Essene community they were probably or very possibly the ones that penned the Qumran writings, what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, helped protect them anyway. Uh, this is all near the Dead Sea. And this particular group would be very strict in their beliefs. They would be legalistic. They believed that you would go into this water and you would wash in this water and you would be purified. And they would do this on a regular basis to the point where it was very legalistic, it was very ritualistic, and these waters actually purified your sins. And it was a required act. Ceremony washing, even in the Essene community, went to that extent. I hope you're already seeing some of the parallelism with baptism, but the mistake that we can make is therefore then concluding, well, so that baptism literally washes your sins away and saves you. This is called baptismal regeneration. There are some who believe that when you're water baptized, you are saved. Okay? I'm going to come back to this because, in all fairness, we need to see the connection between water baptism and salvation. That is going to be very important. But we, what we do not want to conclude is that by being water baptized, you are then saved. Okay? So let, let's look at this concept of water baptism. And I want us, first of all, to, to try and understand what water baptism signifies. So turn with me to Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Mm -hmm. 
Can someone read Acts 22, 16 for us out loud? Just raise your hand real quickly. Aisha, please. Thank you. Real loud. And now I do delay. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Okay. What is integrally connected with the idea of being baptized in water? Washing away your sins. Now, this is probably the main passage for those who believe in baptismal regeneration. They would say that it's a clear teaching here that if you are water baptized, it washes your sins away. We, it, it would certainly seem at face value that that's what it's implying. But as you dig further in scripture and you put these puzzle pieces together, you realize that's not what he's saying. And we're going we're gonna to do that in just a little bit. Um, and actually, it's clear that scripture's not saying that by being water baptized, it saves you. Um, but what I want us to understand is that there is a strong connection between water baptism and washing away of your sins. Why do you suppose that might be the case? Throw out some ideas. Why do you suppose there is a connection? I'm kind of getting at why did God choose water baptism? But why, what, is, what are you seeing the connection between water baptism and washing away of sins? Okay. Ooh, I'm going to guess. Has something to yes, do John. All right, okay. Go for it. I'll guess. Um, has something to do with Noah, yeah. right, in the ark? Um, there is a passage that we're going to look at that in just a little bit okay, I'm concerning that. That's wrong. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe you are. Maybe you are. <laughs> So just based on this passage, the water baptism and washing away of your sins without getting into Noah and the flood and such, what would you, what would you say? Uh, go ahead, the end. Washing away, if you're dirty, it takes away the dirt. And in our soul, sin is dirty. Okay. And so baptism is a, a symbolic washing away of our sins and cleaning our soul. Okay. Meaning original sin because it happened so early. If the baptism happens early, it doesn't save us. Right. But since I think we've come to the conclusion that infant baptism is not the the teaching in the New Testament, I want to avoid suggesting that water baptism washes away original sin. And therefore, therefore, I mean, it washes away our sins. It doesn't wash away our proclivity to sin. Okay? our inclination to sin. Otherwise, we wouldn't want to sin anymore. It washes away the guilty stain of sin. Okay? Have you ever cleaned something? Someone put a can of paint by the front door here, and it was wet, and it happened before we moved in, and it left a stain there. Not only does the gunk that was on the bottom of that can removed, not only was the can removed and the gunk on the bottom of the can removed, but now this stain is remains, but if we were to make this analogous to the Christian life, there is something that happens when we believe that would wash that rusty stain away. Okay? It leaves no stain against us. It doesn't mean it washes away original sin. It doesn't mean our proclivity to sin, our nature, our bent to sin is gone. I would venture to say it's broken. It's stranglehold of sin is broken on us when we believe in Jesus. But the original sin is not gone. All right, now, let me ask you this. What is it 
that washes away our sin. If it's not the waters of baptism, what is it? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's right, the blood of Jesus. That is what washes away the sin. Not the water. We have to recognize that the water is therefore a symbol and not the real thing that washes away the sin. So even though we are seeing a connection here, be baptized and wash away your sins, there is something about baptism that can impact the washing away of your sins that 1 Peter 3 gets at, that John is wanting us to jump into, and I'm not ready for that quite yet, but he gets at this idea of Noah and such, as that's the context. And if you haven't read the verses, you're probably going, what What does Noah have to do with baptism? Good question. We'll get there in a moment. But... We want, I want us to see there's this connection between water baptism and the washing away. Water washing. You got that. Okay. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. I'm not, you don't have to turn there, but it says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, <coughs> baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want us to, and teaching them whatsoever I've commanded you. This is what Jesus told his apostles to do. So they were commanded to make disciples, but how are you going to make disciples? You are going to obviously be proclaiming the gospel, but he doesn't say preach the gospel here. Instead, he says baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not, again, that if you just baptize somebody, you can just walk up to somebody, throw them into a pool. Woo, we got saved tonight. Man, how many people did we get baptized? I mean, throw into the pool tonight. You know, that's not what he's talking about. All right, this isn't some forced baptism. And it is not baptism that saves you. But baptism, therefore, should be seen as this initiatory um, demonstration that I am now included in the body of Christ. I have now trusted in Jesus Christ. Um, now what I would like us to do to kind of bring this together would be to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. So let's do that. John, I'm going to have you read that passage. Oh, do you, oh, you need to borrow your Bible for that one. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. Shh. I won't say that out loud. Okay, I'm actually going to have you, since you brought up the concept of the ark, we need to include verse 20 with this. So John, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Actually, if you... Yeah, yeah let, go ahead and start in verse 20. It kind of interrupts a thought, but we're going to keep going all the way back to verse 17 if we need to. So just start with verse 20. Who formerly were... Disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the day of the Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an anti type which now saves us baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of good conscience towards God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Okay. So this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. And we have to ask the question, when he talks about baptism here, 
is he specifically talking about water baptism? Because he does talk about the waters of the time of Noah that buoyed the ark and therefore saved them. Is he therefore talking about the baptismal waters that now save us, specifically the physical water that we go into when we are baptized? My, yes? I, I don't know. I would say no, because my version says, in the, uh, talk about baptism, in the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God. So it's saying not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So in my mind, I'm like, all right, well, what removes dirt from your flesh? Like, physical water. Okay. Well, my version was written straight from Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> thank, you, thank you, John. Oh, man. That's how you spoke English. But if not the removal of the filth of the flesh, it is the what? Okay. Mine version says the answer of a good conscience toward God. What does the answer of a good conscience toward God have to do with water baptism? Help me out here. Okay, let's, let's draw this out a little bit more. Help me out, Rachel. Renewal of our minds. Okay, again, what does this have to do with water baptism? It's a symbol. Okay, so if water baptism is a symbol of the answer of a good conscience toward God, what is that answer of a good conscience toward God? Jesus having been baptized in the blood of Jesus. Okay, once our sin is washed away by the blood of Jesus, our conscience is clear because our sins are washed away and we can answer to God. So therefore, now that I have been brought into the body of Christ, I've been rescued and my sins have been washed away, I will at my baptism testify to what Christ has done for me. And that testimony of what he has done for me is not because it's happening at that very moment, but because it happened in the past. I am now being water baptized and I am publicly declaring both by my action and my words, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am turning my back on my old way of life and I am following Jesus. That's what water baptism it declares. That's the that's the publicity, the publicness of water baptism. That's why we don't, we try not to, sometimes you can't get away from that, like the Ethiopian eunuch. He probably wasn't by himself, but it was probably just him and, and Philip that were saved. That was the community of believers right there, and he got baptized. Alright? Good enough. That's not haul yourself all the way back to Jerusalem where all the Christians are to get water baptized. No, this is water, it's sufficient, let's do it now. Come on. But the answer of a good conscience is a testimony of what Christ has done, and that happens at, at your water baptism, and therefore it, it is referring to something in the past. Water baptism as well refers to something in the past. I'm being water baptized, I'm declaring I'm a follower of Jesus Christ because my mind has been renewed. That's my testimony because of not what's happening to me right now in water baptism, but what happened to me. I believe in Jesus Christ, 
And by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, my sins were washed away. And now I am entering into these waters because my sins have been washed away. Now, here is something that we need to see. When you go through the entire book of Acts, do you ever have Peter saying or Paul saying or some other proclaimed Stephen proclaiming the gospel, if you want to have Jesus in your heart, come on down to the front. Do, do, I mean, I mean just honestly, think through that. I'm not opposed to altar calls. But our altar calls have done something. They have tended to replace the urgency of water baptism. Because as you look at on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the church. Is that because they came and knelt at some huge altar and asked Jesus into their heart? No. It says that they, they came forward, they were water baptized. They were only water baptized because they had called upon the name of the Lord. That phrase is used twice. A quote from in Joel 2, and then at the very end, what must we do to be saved? This gift of spirit is for you, your children, all those who are far off, as many as you would or will call on the name of the Lord. And so they called on the name of the Lord. They came down to the front and front. There's a front. And they were water baptized. Now, I don't know where they were water baptized. The pool of Siloam, I guess, was pretty close by. But they were baptized. 3,000 that day. As you go through the book of Acts, what you find is this sense of urgency. If you want to follow Jesus, then come and get water baptized. That's why the eunuch, Ethiopian eunuch, after hearing the gospel said, here's a body of water, what's keeping me from getting baptized? It was a declaration, a sign, a seal. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I've turned my back on the world and, and all of the, everything about it, and I am following Jesus. Okay? So you, you see that sense of urgency. And maybe I'm guilty of it too, but we live in a, for the most part, a nice pristine culture you come to church in your suit and tie your nice dress if you give your heart to jesus you're going to get water you're going to go into the water it's going to mess up your hairdo okay you have to pull out your your uh your, your dryer hair dryer but you don't have a hair dryer you weren't expecting to get saved that day so maybe the church provides the gown and the church provides the hair dryer and the church provides the soap and the well maybe not the soap church provides the towel and, the, and, and some churches are aware of this you know, this catch or, or, or trap we are in our culture of looking our best on Sunday when we go to church. And so they, they do provide, Safe Harbor Christian Church provides these things if you go in the back. And they do. And I've talked with Dan, Pastor Dan White. And, and if, you get, if you give your heart to Christ, they want you to get baptized immediately. And if that means, okay, go into the back room, get changed, get into this gown, we're going to baptize you right now. Okay? I like that. And, and maybe as a church, we need to have a little vestry, whatever they call it. It's a changing room. You need to get dressed in this, and we're going to baptize you right now. Remember when, I remember when someone came to our church, he got saved, and I, I, I sent him home to grab his, his swim trunks and come on back. We're baptizing you tonight, okay? But that was so common in the New Testament, that sense of urgency. Because even as the urgent, there is the urgency to have an altar call, and confess your sins and pray a prayer at the altar. Um, that's not what you see in the New Testament. 
calling on the name of the Lord is assumed. It's what her baptism that kind of, let's seal this deal. You're going to follow Jesus? Then, then prove it, show it, and be water baptized. Okay. Um, I need to check my time. I think I'm running out of time here. Yeah. Romans 6, uh, 3 through 4. Let, let's look at this. We, we, we've made this connection of water baptism with washing away of our sins. But we need to see it's more than this. It is not just the washing away of our sins. It is actually something that's even deeper. And as we look at verses 3, uh, tell you what, who wants to start at verse 3? Just keep reading until you get tired. This is an awesome chapter. Uh, actually, if you could read through verse 6, 3 through 6. Juliana? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Okay. So here, what does this baptism symbolize? What, what is it connected to? Leanne, what is it connected death, to? The death of death, Christ. The death of Christ. And the death of our old sinful selves. There we go. Into the life with Christ. Okay. In a new body. Part of Christ. Okay, in a new creation, if I can word it that way. Okay, we, so, Kate, go ahead. Just, it's almost like the water is the grave, and you go down into it, and then come up resurrected. Okay, all right. Um, (laughs) Baptism, therefore, is a memorial service, even as communion is a memorial service. Communion is a memorial service of Jesus' death, But it is not just Jesus' death, because we know Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus did not rise, I want you to listen to this. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, the cross meant nothing. The resurrection, write this down, the resurrection empowers the cross. Jesus' resurrection is what allows his blood to wash away our sins. Baptism is therefore intricately connected with Jesus' death. His resurrection empowers that death. Now, maybe I'm being a little picky here, but baptism does not specifically represent the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, look at this passage again. Through baptism, we are identified with his death and his resurrection. It says we're identified with his death so that his resurrection, how does it say it? Or just in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So it's Jesus' resurrection. We've died to the old man, but because of his res- that's that's what the symbol, that's what the 
baptism uh, symbolizes and identifies with, but Jesus' resurrection now empowers us to live this new life. So we our baptism symbolizes this death, and now Jesus' resurrection empowers us to live this new life. So I, I'm not going to go so far as to say that baptism represents both the death and resurrection of Jesus, though many commonly say it that way. I'm just going to say it symbolizes his death, but his resurrection is absolutely important because that's what empowers the cross, okay? Maybe I'm being a little picky there, but I'm just not seeing that the baptism represents his resurrection as well. Though I've heard it said, and we're we're, um, raised in newness of life, and that that too is what baptism represents. I'm just not seeing scripture showing that but it is necessary, even as Jesus' resurrection was necessary for the cross. Okay? Do we see that? All right. Um, But it is, therefore, a memorial service. It is a death, a turning my back on, and I am refusing to follow my old way of life. That is what water baptism is a declaration of. Okay? That's our identification. Christ's death. And now his resurrection makes me alive, a new creation, born again. I am following, because I'm alive, I am following Jesus Christ. Okay, Leanne? Question. <coughs> Excuse me. If someone falls away from Christ, let's say they've been coming to church and living the life, uh, and they want to be in Christ, but something happens and they fall away, is it necessary then to have another baptism when they... Uh, return to the life? Can I, are you suggesting if they backslide? Yes. Okay, all right. Because apostasy would be something different. Right. And, and, okay, and we've looked at Hebrews 6 4 right. on that one. And if you guys have forgotten that passage in Hebrews 6 4, you can revisit it online. So if they're backslidden, do they need to be rebaptized? I would say no, because that baptism is a sign of death. Though even though they are they have gone back in some fashion to their old way of life, if they were truly saved, then they do and they were baptized, then they do not need to be rebaptized. There's actually no examples of that in the New Testament. And I'm sure that people backslid back then as they do today. There's just no examples of rebaptism. Now people who have been infant baptized, I do encourage them to be rebaptized. Because I don't see infant baptism as a biblical teaching. But believers' baptism, so um, altogether different as a result. Um, the real question, though, is were they truly saved? That I can't decide. For my children, I kind of viewed as they moved in their teenage years a rededication. But for them, they viewed no, Dad. You know what? I am. I, I have truly trusted in Christ. I see so much transformation. I would say that I got saved. So can I get rebaptized? And I have said yes. Because it's, it's not up to me to decide whether they get baptized or not. That's their choice. All right? Okay. The mode of baptism. Here's why I chose to address the mode of baptism second, following the significance of baptism and what baptism symbolizes. Because once you understand the symbol of baptism, the mode of baptism becomes a no-brainer. Now, the word baptizo does mean immerse. Some suggest that it can also mean to touch the water. 
the priests um, the priests dipped their fingers into the blood and they would sprinkle it okay on the objects the altars utensils etc in the sept in this um, the Septuagint the Greek word for dip there is baptizo they baptized their finger in the blood and sprinkled it the question though is does that mean that they must necess- is that mean that they are immersing <coughs> their entire finger or immersing the tip of their finger which is which was now follow me here which which was all that was needed to be done to sprinkle the blood some would say if they only dipped their finger then you do not that word baptizo does not mean full immersion or not always and therefore you can sprinkle or pour or be immersed I would suggest between, because th- those are the, th- for the most part, those are the three options. Do we sprinkle? That goes back to Ezekiel 36, sprinkling the heart with water and cleansing it. Is that really what baptism is about? Does it mean pour or dip? Or does it mean immerse? The reason why I think this is important is because of what baptism symbolizes. Baptism symbolizes the washing away of our sins. Does that happen simply by pouring or sprinkling? The sprinkling of the heart is is used in Ezekiel 36. That's hardly the concept of baptism that would wash away sins. Sprinkling of water, why would Peter suggest baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, because you're immersing your hands in the water, obviously, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, why would he suggest the removal of the dirt from your hands if you're just sprinkling water on them? The, the idea then of washing away of sins, when also when we were, when we're identified with Christ in his death, it uses this concept of buried with him in baptism. Does that mean that just your arm is buried? Or just your nose or your head or your leg or your toe or your fingernail is buried? I'm being facetious here. No, you are... Jesus' body was fully buried and in that sense we are fully immersed in the water. And, And if we choose a different mode, we begin to lose... The, the real connection and symbolism of what water baptism looks to. It's being buried with Christ in baptism. Not sprinkled, not dipped in death, but fully immersed in this death. The whole way of life. The whole me. Buried with him in baptism. So that by Christ's resurrection, I come up a completely new creation. Not just a part of me that was dipped or sprinkled the whole me because the whole me was immersed. I believe this is a necessary understanding for baptism if we're going to grasp the full meaning of what water baptism is for us. It, it, it is given for us for. Question? Okay, so while the mode, the proper mode of baptism would be immersion, like at the same time, 
like anyone can perform a baptism, so you technically could do a sprinkling. Like if you didn't have enough water to bury someone in, right? Yes, if there is a puddle of water, yeah, and, and that's all that you have got, I'm going to leave that up between you and the Lord. So these concepts of washing and buried with him in, in death, these things must imply an immersion and not just a sprinkling or a pouring, okay? Um, and the word baptizo, if we are to interpret it, dip, and it's, if he's referring to that portion of the finger that was used for sprinkling of blood, which would be the tip of the finger, then the tip of the finger was immersed in the blood, mm-hmm. Okay? Um, and that's the only one that I'm aware of that would be able to even suggest something short of full immersion. Okay? Any questions with regard to this at this point? Okay. Um, so what does this have to do with the dwelling of the Spirit at that time? Is that possible or does it have to be the dwelling of the Spirit? That is a good question. As we look at Ephesians 4, it says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Hebrews 6.2 talks about instruction of baptisms. Water baptism is what is being referred to here. There is one initiation into the body of Christ, okay? But this word baptizo um, is used with regard to other things, such as John's baptism. Christian baptism is different than John's baptism. We discover this in, in Ephesians 19, when the Ephesian disciples were had been baptized according to in John's baptism, but not Christian baptism, meaning baptized in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, etc. John's baptism was a repentance. It's a baptism of repentance. It's not that Christian baptism is not. Christian baptism is just more. Because when you... Ter- repentance is a turning away from something. John's baptism was that, but you are following God. Christian baptism is I am following Jesus. It's very specific. Why? Because Jesus was the one who came and died on the cross for my sins and I am now giving my life to him, not just God in general. Otherwise, Jews would be saved as well as Christians. But according to God's (coughs) word, if you reject the Son, you reject the Father. We are specifically told to place our faith in Jesus. That's what Christian baptism identifies with. Okay? And John's baptism did not. Even though John said, I baptize with water, but one who follows after me, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit, which is kind of what it seems like you're getting at. Baptism in water is not symbolic of baptism with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Though the word baptizo is used, it does not mean that. For It's, it's also used... That when the Holy Spirit baptizes the believer 
in the body of Christ. That is something that's different. Okay? Water baptism does not symbolize the believer being immersed in the body of Christ. It is our, our identification with Christ's death. Okay? So water baptism... Because people have asked me, so Mike, when I get water baptized, am I going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Okay, so will this act of going into the water empower me with the Holy Spirit? That's really what your question is. And I have to say, Scripture doesn't teach that. Okay? So when it says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, it doesn't mean that there is not a baptism of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit baptizing believers in Jesus into the body of Christ. It, it, that one baptism is that baptism that symbolizes our salvation. Okay? So, it's up to you, but you could just talk about the immersion in the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit immersing us into the body of Christ. But when we talk about water baptism, we use the word baptism. Okay? That would be fair enough. Because just understand that's what baptism means. It means to be immersed. All right? Have you been immersed in the Holy Spirit? I'm not asking you if you were water immersed. I'm just asking, have you been immersed in the Holy Spirit? So those are two different theological concepts. Acts, events with God. Uh, did I answer your question, Michael? Mostly. Mostly, then. No, not totally. Okay, all right. Um, is there something else that you're asking with that question that might be helpful? Well, how would we know we're dwelt with the Spirit at that point? Or is it a point or breaking point okay. of the process? Or? Let me encourage you, if you could, gain access to uh, PowerlineCC.com website and go on there because when I, when I taught on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I think I, it was two sessions, and I get into this, okay? And maybe just a review of that would be helpful, because um, every believer in Jesus has the Holy Spirit. They've been sealed with the Spirit, but not necessarily empowered with the Spirit as the book of Acts speaks of. Okay? So we can have the Spirit. We are regenerated by the Spirit. Is the Spirit of God working in the believer when they're regenerated? Yes. That is one work of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit washes away our sins, that's another work of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit at conversion sanctifies us, then in the Christian life continues this sanctification process, those two, that initial sanctification and the process of sanctification, those are other works of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit works in the believer but we have to distinguish those works from the empowering work of the Spirit, which the book of Acts gets into, to empower us to be his witnesses. So not to reteach that, I would encourage you, revisit those teachings. There is a difference, um, and the goal there is to be filled with the Spirit. Okay? Yeah. With the power of the Spirit. All right? I just want to close in saying this. Baptism, water baptism, does not save us. But water baptism is that call to the believer 
that we give now to we're basically saying hey if you believe in Jesus and if you've raised your hand and you've asked Jesus into your heart or if you've fully surrendered if you've repented and you've turned to Jesus tonight I want you to come down and we'd like to pray for you and we'll pray for him at the altar and this is what they call an altar call we just don't see that in the New Testament I'm not opposed to that it may help someone but what we should be doing is calling them to be water baptized. Let's, you've made an agreement with God. You have dedicated your heart to God. Now let's demonstrate this and be water baptized. It is a command given by Jesus Christ himself that we are to be water baptized. Though it does not save us, it certainly well symbolizes that immersion in the water, well symbolizes the washing away of our sins and our identification with Jesus' death, death of the old man, death of the old way of life, and the newness of life that comes through Christ as a result. Um, so I'm just going to encourage you, if you have never been water baptized, and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, can you see me afterwards? I would love to set up a time in which you get water baptized. Okay? Let me close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for the fact that Jesus Christ, when he was on that cross, he made salvation completely accessible and free to us. And that if we would but surrender our hearts to you, believe in the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. And I thank you, Father, that you don't just wash away some of our sins. You wash away all of our sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I thank you, Father, that we have received newness of life in Christ by his resurrection. I thank you, Father, that we stand here today in right relationship with you because of what Christ has done. And baptism is our declaration of this. We are followers of Jesus, dead to self and following him. Seal these truths in our heart, I pray, God, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.